0: We do have the kids with us today. Once, about once a month, we have a family worship Sunday, and today's the day. And so we've got our older kids here with us instead of uh, kids' church. And so, yes, there may be a little bit more activity or maybe a little more volume. And you know what, moms and dads, that's okay. That is quite all right. We are glad the kids are up here with us, and particularly as we go into the second chapter of Daniel. I think that there are some, uh, some takeaways from this book, that you, some conversations you can have with your kids uh, later on today. So I invite your attention to, to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a very interesting account that has to do with a dream, I know we've got some boys and girls up close here. Do you all ever have funny dreams? Anybody have a funny dream? What about a scary dream? Okay, we do have. Does anybody have a recurring dream that just kind of okay? A few of you just kind of comes back every so often. Well, I did a little reading this week since I was going to be talking about this dream, just to 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 read a little bit more about dreams, and I I discovered some things uh, that I didn't know before. I I I read that about twelve percent of the population. Dream in black and white, not color. Yeah, so you're probably even wondering if you're one of them, right? I, I, I don't know. Is it black and white? Is it color? Uh, we, we, we also learn about dreams that, uh, that if you see a face in a dream, it's a face that you've seen before. You might say, well, I didn't recognize the face. Well, you may have seen the face in a crowd at some point. Your mind remembered that face. There are also certain themes about, of dreams that are, that are really universal, uh, what I mean by a theme. Here's an example: that you are in a dream and you are being chased. Anybody have that? Have you ever had a dream where you are falling off of a very high place? All cultures experience these kinds of dreams. There's another one that I thought was uh, interesting: that you are you are arriving late to some place important. Anybody ever had that? Okay, all right. Yeah, mine's usually a final exam. At school and I'm looking for the room, right? Um, or that you are feeling like you're frozen. You need to get somewhere really fast and you just can't move. You ever have, a, it's another recurring theme. One that didn't make the list that I was surprised about was, was uh, the theme of snakes in dreams. Does anybody else have snakes in dreams? Is it just me? I mean, I grew up on the Gulf Coast, so maybe it's just part of my childhood. I don't know. Well, Maybe tonight we'll have snakes. (laughs) I'll tell you the good thing about it when you wake up, though. You wake up and go, wow, things are not that bad. (laughs) You know, it could be a whole lot worse. Um, I also read that on the average lifetime, a person will spend six years of life dreaming. Six years, isn't that amazing? And final one is that 95% of all dreams are forgotten. 95% of the time, we don't even remember what they are. Usually within five minutes of waking up is what the research tells us. Well, today, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream. And he's going to have a dream that maybe he has forgotten. We're not exactly sure. But he wants someone to help him understand what his dream means. He is bothered by it. In fact, here he is, the ruler of one of the, the greatest empires, at least in that day, and he is paralyzed with fear over a dream. And so I invite your attention to Daniel chapter two, and let's read the opening verses together. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, and then in parentheses it says, Aramaic begins here. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. You think the king is serious? Got my attention, right? All right, verse 6. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. We see here the opening scene of chapter 2 is that the king is in an absolute panic. Evidently, he is having a recurring nightmare. It's causing him to wake up. He might be forgetting about it. I don't, the passage doesn't say, but he is having trouble going back to sleep. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had something wake you up at night and and struggle to get back to sleep again. That's the scenario that he finds himself in. Now, before we get into the meat of the passage, I want to point out the parenthetical reference in verse 4, when it references the Aramaic language. Now, you know that the Old Testament is primarily written in what? Hebrew. Hebrew. And there are a few occasions where you can find an Aramaic word or phrase here and there. But this happens to be the longest section of the Old Testament written in Aramaic. Really from the middle of verse 4, where that quote starts, all the way through chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And that's, that's unusual. And it, it probably prompts the question, why would this large portion of Scripture be written in something other than, than Hebrew? And I think that we find the answer in the fact that these are exiles that are living where? In Babylon. And they are th- these chapters, as we'll see in the coming weeks, have to do with, uh, uh, with, with kingdoms and with people that are Gentile. And, and so Aramaic would have been a common language at the time. Some would call it like the lingua franca, that if, if someone had different languages that they spoke, maybe the common language would be Aramaic. And so this was a message that God wanted, not just for the people of Israel, not just for the exiles, but he wanted everyone everywhere to have an opportunity to understand the message of Daniel. And so here we see a message for the nations regarding the power of the one true God. Let's get back into the passage. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he uh, might have been leading at that time, what was the mightiest empire, but he was shaken to his core. He was so perplexed that he, he didn't know what, it, what this dream meant, and it, it threatened him. It worried him, and we'll read more about the dream in a few minutes, but, but this was something that really, really got his attention. If you remember last week, we looked at the pagan religions of Babylon, just in in brief. We looked at some of the the sorcery, the witchcraft, the the, the astrology, all of the the techniques and tactics that the Babylonian religions at that time, the pagan religions would use. And so so he has these people that, that, that participate in these types of practices and he calls them his wise men. And he goes to them to interpret. He goes to them to, uh, to tell him uh, what his dream meant. But there was a catch. Did you catch what the catch was in his request? Not just interpret the dream, but do what? D- exactly, disclose the dream. Tell him what it was. And so the, 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 the wise men are saying, who can do this? How can we interpret something that you haven't even told us what it is? And he's saying, you have to tell You have to tell me the whole thing. And in fact, if you look all the way uh, in the following verses, they give a second request for the king to disclose the dream. And for whatever reason, he won't disclose the details. Let's jump down to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. You see, the king is so frustrated, he's so angry, he gets irate with the response of of his wise men that he ordered the death penalty for every single one of them. Now, if you remember back to chapter one, last week, we saw that that Daniel and his three friends, they were were promoted, weren't they? They were given opportunities to to serve the king in his court, so they would have been considered part of his wise men. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, even though we haven't read about them yet up to this point, they would have been included in that whole group for execution. Let's keep reading. Let's pick back up in verse 14. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. So we move to the second scene here in this account, and that is that the servant expresses confidence in God. And I want us to note the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. In Nebuchadnezzar, we have someone who's anxious. We have someone that's threatened, that's worried, that gets to the point that he starts threatening others. And then we have Daniel Daniel, who exudes a confidence, not in himself as we continue reading the passage, we will see that his confidence is solely focused on God. But it says here that he handled himself with with wisdom and with grace, actually verse 14, with tact and discretion. Does it remind you of, of the last chapter? When there was a, a crisis and, and when Daniel came in, this was about if they were gonna eat the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and how he was not willing to do that. And he came with a, with a very uh, a graceful demeanor and he had a plan that, that was agreed upon. And again, the Lord, the Lord led him through that. Well, once again, we see, we see this confidence that, uh, that uh, Daniel has in God. Confidence that God will be at work. Now, I know this morning we've got more kids in here than we typically have. And so I want to I reinforce something that we looked at last week. Did we say last week that Daniel, in this part of, of the book, was an old man or a young man? young man? Young man. How old do we think he probably was? Probably 13 to 18 years old. And I want to emphasize that again because here is a young man. We might say in our culture today, a a teenage boy standing in front of the most powerful man in the Babylonian kingdom, right? And what does he do? He's expressing confidence in God. And I, I, I pray and I hope that our young people, those who are on the platform singing at the beginning of the service, to those that would typically be in kids' church, to those who are in our student ministry, I hope that you will look to Daniel as an example of one who at a young age, planted his stake in the ground. And he said, I'm gonna follow the Lord. I'm gonna live for God. I'm gonna put my trust in God. I'm gonna put my hope in God. I'm gonna be an example and a testimony to others that God is faithful. Now he wasn't obnoxious, he wasn't rude, he wasn't arrogant. We didn't see that today in what we've read so far or in what we read last week. Again, he was very gracious. But he had a firm resolve. He was a young man of conviction. And I tell you, I'm grateful for the young people of Fellowship of Wildwood. There's a lot of conviction here, a lot of courageous faith. And I pray that that God will use the example of Daniel to just do anything but but, but continue to fortify that faith within our young people. I also just want to take a minute to, to express a word of thanks to those who serve with kids. Maybe typically you serve in kids' church or you help with M&Ms or you help with one of the classes. Maybe you're in student ministry and you help out on Wednesday nights or or, or take take part in Sunday morning ministry. Whatever that might look like, we know it takes a lot of volunteers uh, for that to happen. And I want you to know you are pouring yourself in to young Daniels. And that's happening Monday to Friday as well, Living Water Academy. I know we have a lot of people that are pouring themselves into the lives of young people. And I look at, at Daniel as an example of one who had courageous faith at a young age. It's so encouraging to think about. Well, let's continue reading. Let's pick back up in verse 17. It says, then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens. Let's think about this passage together. Daniel is in a crisis, isn't he? Would you say it would be fair to say that he is in a life or death crisis? I mean, his his neck is on the line. The execution orders have already been given, and so this this is a crisis of crises. And yet, notice his response. What does Daniel do? Did it jump out at you? What was Daniel's first response? To pray. He found fellow believers, his three companions, and they got together and they prayed. It was an acknowledgement that they were in a situation that only God could get them through. And I think that there are times when we come upon a, a situation, a crisis, and it's a, it's a reminder of our need for God. It's a reminder that, that, if, that if he doesn't come through, we're sunk. We are so dependent upon what he is able to provide. So he and his friends, they pray together. They go to God for a solution. And after they pray, what does Daniel do? He praises God. What does he do before that? This is almost a trick question, so I'll just give you the answer. He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep. He gets a night vision, it says, a dream. So to get that, he was, I infer, he was asleep. So it, it, it really spoke and, and kind of jumped out to me that here you have these young men in a crisis, going to the Lord in prayer, and then resting in God. It's as if they were able to rest, put their heads down, and fall asleep. And there's, a, there's, a, there's for us, I think, a message That when we have the promises of God in front of us, and when we pursue God in prayer and ask for his provision or blessing or wisdom or protection or whatever that request is, that then we can rest in knowing that he's a good God and we can trust in him. What a contrast between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. What did we read at the beginning of chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar was an insomniac, right? He couldn't sleep, but there you have Daniel, the young man, able to sleep, able to rest, And it's in that point that he's able to go to sleep. I like what David Jeremiah says about this. He says, you may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. Since the whole world is in God's hands, your world is in God's hand. And I think that that speaks a little bit about what we see here in Daniel's life. He is resting and trusting in God. So yes, they prayed, they trusted God, and then verse 19 says that God gave Daniel the answer in a dream that night. And what was Daniel's response after that? He began to praise God. Before anything else happened, before he went and and tried to resolve the situation, he paused, he stopped, and he praised God. In fact, some commentators say that these verses Read uh, like, like a psalm, like a, uh, a song of praise, is, uh, like, like it would have been sung before the Lord. But I want you to notice before we, we look at that, at the end of verse 19, what is the title given to God in verse 19? You see it there? The God of the heavens, that's right. And if you read all the way through chapter two, every verse, you will see that title given five times. God is called the God of the heavens five different times, and we're going to see it a few times as we, as we continue reading. And it's, a, it's an interesting title, because if you think back to last week, we said that the Babylonians had a pantheon of gods. They had Bel, they had Aku, they had, they had uh, um, Marduk, which was the god that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar praised when he was inaugurated as king. So they they had all of these different pagan gods that had different roles, different responsibilities. But that's not the God of Daniel. Daniel's God is the God of the heavens. He's not a territorial God. He is not only a God in the place of Israel, he is the God of heavens. And he rules over all people at all times. And that was the distinction that was being made between the Babylonian deities and the God of the heavens. So we don't want to miss that. But the contrast here is clear. And Daniel prayed to this God. No, he didn't consult the stars. He didn't examine the livers of sheep. Remember last week, that was one of the things that these wise men would do to look for a sign. There was no magic. There was no astrology. There was only prayer. Prayer to the God of the heavens. God did respond. And before we look at that full response, let's see how Daniel praised God. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Now this is a fantastic prayer, so rich. As as we read these words, we can see what Daniel was thinking about. He was thinking about the nature of God. He was thinking about the character of God. He was thinking about the power of God. All of these things were right before him, and he used those as a way to connect who God is, to his situation, and then he offered these words of praise. I want us to see quickly this morning that there are seven aspects of God's character and his nature in these few verses. Because I think for us, there is a model here that when we are in a time of crisis, for us to stop and reflect, well, who is God? Who is God? What is he able to do? How has he proven himself in the past? What is it that I need right now that only he can provide? Wisdom, strength, peace, whatever the the need is. That's what Daniel was doing, and he was using that as a tool for praise. We see in verse 20, he speaks of the eternal nature of God forever and ever. He speaks of God's omniscience in verse 20. Speaking of wisdom and power, power, his omnipotence. In in verse 21, we see the sovereignty of God over the nations. He Raises up kings and he takes kings down. We see in 21 and 22 that he is the giver of wisdom and knowledge and revelation. In fact, he uses the metaphor of darkness and light to speak to that. That if we, if we have knowledge, if we have understanding, it's because it comes from him. If we have wisdom, it's the light of his wisdom that is given to us. And so Daniel praises God for that. The faithfulness to his people as he looks back and says, you're the God of my ancestors. And also in verse 23, the fact that God answers prayer. All of that wrapped up into these few verses give us a great example of praise. Well, this young man evidently knew God well, and he praised him. Let's keep reading. Let's pick back up in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king. Can you imagine why he did it quickly? (laughs) Yeah, the necks were on the line, right? He he brought Daniel quickly before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Verse 26, the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king. Listen to this. He said, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God, where? In heaven, who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty... While you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. It's the third scene. God revealed the mystery. That little phrase is found a couple times in the section that we just looked at. God is the revealer of the mystery. God in heaven. Again, who's the hero of the story in the book of Daniel? God is. God was the hero of chapter one and God is the hero of chapter two. He reveals the mystery. He is saving the lives of those who would have Been killed by the king. But notice that Daniel doesn't take credit. What's he doing? He is pointing to God as the only one who could give the answer, the only one who could reveal these mysteries. Well, now let's read about the dream. Jump down to verse 31. Your Majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. So what are we reading here? We're reading the dream. This is what Daniel uh, was telling Nebuchadnezzar that he dreamed about. This massive statue that terrified him. Here's how it's described. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were partly iron and partly Fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. He dreamed of this colossal statue made of all these different materials. And it says that it terrified him. He didn't understand who this statue was, what it represented, why it was made of different materials. He didn't understand this idea of a stone without a hand throwing it, but a stone coming and knocking it down to where it fell and it broke into pieces like chaff and the wind carried away. All of it was no more. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand what it meant. So Daniel then moves to the interpretation. Look at verse 36. This was the dream Now we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, And then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes it, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is reliable. Daniel gave the dream. He gave the interpretation and he said it was true because he knew the source. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshiped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts, He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Well, we have resolution to our account, don't we? And not only did did Daniel uh, interpret the dream, uh, we see that this chapter ends well for him but hold on. We've still got chapter three to go, right? It's going to get bad again, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's consider the dream. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What do they represent? As as he was saying, they represent four kingdoms or four empires. And traditionally, these have been identified because we have the advantage of looking back historically and seeing that there were other kingdoms that came after Babylon, specifically the Medo-Persian kingdom, Greece, Greece, and the Roman Empire. And uh, as I was trying to to prepare for the message this week, I was looking at different pictures of the statue. You've probably seen some of these. And so I I looked at several to to try to find one. And here's one that might be helpful in being able to see how how these four, five different materials were used and, uh, and how they represent different kingdoms. You've got gold, as Daniel told him, which represented the Babylonian Empire. Not just Nebuchadnezzar, as we're going to see in the next few chapters, there will be two other Babylonian kings that we'll be introduced to. Then we have uh, silver. This is the Medes and the Persians. We're going to to be introduced in chapter 5 to King Cyrus, sometimes called King Darius. And uh, that that empire will last about 200 years. And then it would be taken over by Greece. Do you remember the famous ruler of Greece? Alexander the Great, right? And he would, he would conquer uh, so much of the, of, of the known world. And that, that empire would last for 185 years. And then we would have the Roman Empire and all the different emperors and Caesars and so forth. Now, debate takes place on how long the, uh, the Roman Empire lasted. This, this diagram says it ended in 476. Others uh, mark the split of the Roman church at 1054 as being the end of the empire. Some have looked at other events in 1453 or 1476. I think that confusion lends well to this idea of a divided kingdom. And even as we see what has taken place over Europe with different, different dynasties and different rulers and different names for countries, I think we can see, see the idea of a divided kingdom. But uh, the one thing about this picture that I didn't like is that it didn't have a picture of the stone. Uh, Some of them have a picture of the stone going right after the feet. And uh, I kind of like that. It just has a box down there that says another kingdom that uh, is represented by the stone. Let's think about that kingdom for a minute. Because just about at the high point of Roman rule, there was something that took place in a small province in Israel where a young woman whose name was Mary was approached by an angel. And this is what he said. He said, you're gonna have a son and your son is gonna have a what? A kingdom. Let's look at it together, Luke chapter one. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, I'm sure in the first century, the idea that that the Roman Empire would come to an end, that it would somehow fade away and perish, may, may have been a surprising thought. But how did the kingdom of Jesus do? It went well beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. And all of these empires and kingdoms that we just looked at on the map, they're no longer powers and dynasties any longer. you don't talk about the Babylonian kingdom, do you? But the kingdom of Christ, it came, it was established when he arrived. Now he is the stone that would smash the statue, the stone that would become a mountain. And and, and that mountain did what? It says the stone became a mountain and the mountain filled the earth because his is a kingdom that is global. We saw that it's eternal, it's also global. It's not like any of the other kingdoms that have come before it. Now, some look at Daniel chapter two and they say, are are these verses that are pointing to the end of the age when when Christ will finally establish his kingdom or is it pointing to the inauguration of of, of his kingdom at its inception when, when Jesus came the first time? And I think we could say both. Oftentimes, prophecy has a now and a not yet correlation. And so so it did happen. Daniel 2 began in the day of Jesus when he came, just as the angel said, he was bringing a kingdom. But then we know that there will be a second coming of Christ when he will fully realize his kingdom. That's why the latter part of Daniel has a lot to do with eschatology. And there's connections into the book of Revelation and and, uh, Ezekiel and other places because there is that that end times dynamic. But I don't want us to miss the metaphor here also of the stone, the stone that came in and knocked the statue over. That stone metaphor could really be a sermon all in itself. From the Old Testament all through the New Testament, we get this picture of a stone. And uh, we see that the stone has power. One example is in Psalm 2. And I think there's a connection from Daniel 2 to Psalm 2. He says, I, it's a messianic psalm, by the way. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. And so we, again, get this this metaphor, this metaphorical language that's showing that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is global and eternal. It will never end. And as we think about the New Testament usage of the stone, oftentimes it speaks of Jesus Christ, the stone that the builders rejected that became the what? The cornerstone. That's our Savior. He is the rock. So much more that could be said about that. But again, let us see that only the kingdom of God is eternal. It never ends. Only the kingdom of God is an international kingdom, a kingdom from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's a global kingdom, one people, one body, and its size and breadth make the Babylonian kingdom look quite limited and make its leader, Nebuchadnezzar, look Quite mortal. You see, God, he dwells in the heavens, as we've seen, and he would declare that that his kingdom would replace all earthly kingdoms with his eternal one. So folks, that's the message of the dream, not just for the exiles, not just for the king, but for us today. There is a message in this dream that God is the true God. That God is in ultimate control and that God's eternal kingdom has no rivals. That's the kingdom, brothers and sisters, that we've been brought into. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in his kingdom. And if you're here today and you're saying, well, Ryan, I'm not sure I'm in that kingdom. I'm not sure I know Christ. I would invite you to pursue him. I would invite, invite you to come to Christ. Let him... Let him be your savior. Let him be your king, your Lord. And you will then inherit his kingdom. You will be a part of something that is not only global, but is indeed eternal. Well, as we wrap up, let's think about some ways to apply Daniel chapter two. Let me just give you a couple of questions for consideration, okay? Here's the first one. What role does prayer have in dire situations? Maybe I should say what role should prayer have you see sometimes we are brought into a to a situation that is that is terrible it's bad it's hard but it's in that time that that we don't cling to self sufficiency right we're reminded that we need god to come through for us and we find ourselves on our knees praying and so so i think we should connect prayer to our dire situations and daniel gave a great example of that didn't he First thing he did is he found his his friends, shared a common faith, they got together and they prayed. Second question, what aspects of God's character come to mind when we pray? Again, Daniel gave us an example of this. He listed seven or eight different things that came to mind about God. And so maybe for some of us, when we are in a time of crisis, we are experiencing a time of need, maybe we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness or God's presence, or God's power, or his peace, or his wisdom, all of these different needs, we can connect them to the character and nature of God. And those then remind us that we can trust in him. Here's a third question. When God does answer that prayer, do we praise him? Do we remember to praise God for his faithfulness? When we reflect upon God's activity in our lives, do we take that time to praise him? Which is exactly what Daniel and his friends were doing. As we close, I want us to leave the book of Daniel for a minute and go over to Psalm 137. This is a a Psalm of exile and it was written in Babylon. So this was not written by Daniel, it would have been written by other people who were involved in the exile. And I want you to hear how they responded. And I want to ask you if they responded like Daniel did. Is that a fair question? Here we go. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres. Some versions say we hung up our harps on the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. Verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? Do they sound like they have the faith of a Daniel? Do they sound like they have the courage of Daniel? What are they doing? They're 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 hanging up their musical instruments on a tree and saying, we have nothing to sing right now. We're not in the promised land. We're exiles. You know what, brothers and sisters? We are too. We're exiles. We're in the wilderness. We've not yet gotten to the promised land. So what are we going to do? Are we going to hang up our harps, hang up our lyres, hang up our guitars and just say, we have nothing to sing about? That would be one response. Or maybe we could be like Nebuchadnezzar we could just get mad and we could get bitter and we could just threaten others, right? That's another response of Daniel chapter 2. But then, instead of panicking and staying awake all night, like Nebuchadnezzar did, we could be like Daniel, who did what? Put his trust in God. He exhibited a courageous faith and he even praised God, knowing knowing that God would bring him through. Well, dear friends, we can also look unto God. We can look to Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, who has and will firmly establish his eternal kingdom. You see, God is the true God, and God is an ultimate control, and God's eternal kingdom has no rivals. Do you believe that? Let's stand together and let's do what Daniel did and let's praise him today for who he is and how he is at work among us.